It's the yard site of Rav Luchmstein, Rosh Being back in Eretz Yisrael, it elicits a lot of excitement and a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of dreams, a lot of prophetic hopes. And these are very important, and they thrust our whole experience, and they reinforce our conviction, especially in the face of the opposition. Today and yesterday were difficult days in Eretz Yisrael, and suddenly we should continue to say to Hillam and to commiserate and identify with what's happening in Eretz Yisrael. But sometimes when you live through redemption and when you live through prophecy, there are some dangers in getting too far ahead of yourself and getting a little too enthusiastic, a little too euphoric, a little too heady. Um, you can raise expectations, which if they aren't met, could become very, very frustrating. Think of Shabtai Tzvi, false and failed Messiah in the 17th century. Everyone's excited, probably close to 40% of the Jewish community sold off their possessions. And then when he was exposed as a fraud, it led to a very, very depressing era. It could lead to reckless behavior. Think of the Ben Ephraim, the Shevet Ephraim, who left Messiah too early because they thought redemption was in the air. So we feel as if Tanakh has greater relevance in our world than it may have had in the past. And the study of Tanakh is being more popularized. And not just the study of Tanakh, but the attempt to trace Tanakh and associate Sukkim in Tanakh and themes in Tanakh with current events. And I, I read Tanakh that way. Marabim, many Marabim taught me to read Tanakh. That was certainly Ravam Mital. But it can lead to a certain recklessness and almost irresponsible form of, of experience. And Rav Luchnesim was very much different from that. And he created what I would call a much more anchor-braced and solid form of relationship with Eretz So I want to give a few examples. A Gemara he was very fond of quoting is the Gemara, the Chacham Adif Minavi. And it's just, a, it's not really stated in the context of how you relate to Eretz Yisrael and to Israel, but it does create this contrast between Chacham, wisdom, Torah, intellect, Halacha, and Navi, which is prophecy and vision and Ruach HaKodesh. So, for example, when Hebron, or parts of Hebron were returned to the Palestinian Authority, returned but handed over to the Palestinian Authority in the mid-90s. So it was a very, very difficult time. And Rav Luchensin gave us a sicha about how to experience what then was conflicting emotions. Remember, it's very hard to convey to people in the current generation that some people really believed in the chances for peace it seems like a cruel joke, especially in light of what happened today in Eretz Yisrael. But in that era, level-headed people believed it was possible. I'm not taking a political stance, I'm not defending, I'm not accusing, but people who supported it, supported it because they felt it was a real chance to save lives and to stabilize the situation. But yet it's Eretz Avos, it's the land of our fathers, it's Maris Machpelah. Obviously we weren't delivering the Maris Machpelah proper, but the whole environment was one of mixed and very, very conflicting emotions. So you'd think you, you, you'd quote a, something from Bracious where Avram struggles over Hebron. You'd quote some Sukkim from Yeshaya or Melachim Beis where we're leaving Eretz Yisrael, but it's still ours. You'd look for or Nevuas about our return to Hebron. Revaran delivered. This is at a Hanukkah party. We're sitting around the table eating food and getting ready to dance. Revaran delivered a very, very intricate 
shear about two different types of withdrawal or reneging. There's something in halacha called vitor, where a person just abdicates and just surrenders without any interest. Vav yud, taf, vav resh. It's disgusting. And then there's something called pshara, where two sides reach a, a compromise, and it's reciprocal, and you're still engaged with the other side. You're not just unilaterally, just disconnecting attitudinally and emotionally. And Ravara launched into a very, very extensive halachic conversation about what vitor is and what pshara is. It sounded like a shir klali, according to Shonim and Achronim, and it, it just didn't fit, as it were, the setting. The setting wasn't the base management from its farm. It was over a, a masiba in the Chadr Ochel. And he was encouraging us not to look at Hebron as a vitor, as just a, I don't care about Hebron, who cares about that land anymore, let's move on and focus on central Israel, but rather Pshara, where there are certain needs and demands of history, and we're responding to them, and it's difficult. And, of course, it's very brisker, inasmuch as you're always using halachic constructs to frame or serve as a prism through which to experience life. But it wasn't just the classic brisker employment of halachic categories to process and to understand our experiences, but it was it was very clear that Rav Luchensin wasn't off on some prophetic Tanakh-based experience, but he was processing it through these classic halachic models. Um, the 50th year of Israel, we're celebrating the 71st year of the state of Israel, the 50th year of Israel, what 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 would you imagine? I, I can't, if I made a list of the top 10 psukim in Tanakh to, to speak about during the 50th year of the state of Israel, psukim of Geula, psukim from Yeshaya, psukim of. And Ravaran launched into a deconstruction of what Yovel is and the different parts of Yovel and almost a cheshbana nefesh as to whether in our Yovel year and in Israel, we're meeting the expectations of the Torah for Yovel, are we creating a society of social justice, are we creating economic opportunities, are we creating spiritual growth, which Yovel is supposed to enable. And these were two very, very distinct moments. I remember the Sichot, and it was very different than Rav Amital and very different than, I think, a lot of the current conversation, which, again, I'm personally involved in, and I like reading, and, and, I, and I create those associations, but there's some very, very distinct dangers, and I would say Revolution created a grounded, responsible form of redemptive consciousness that, although it is driven by a lot of Tanakh and trying to link prophecies to current events, was also very grounded to halachic constructs. And to a degree, I think, not just because the halacha was so important, because it was a little, I think maybe even uncomfortable, making such heady predictions about Tanakh. He was once asked which parak he read as a child in 1948, or which parak he thought about. I forget the exact question. Now, if you ask people what parak in Tanakh they associate with 1948, you pick any parak in Shir Hashirim. You can pick any parak in Ezra or Nehemiah about the return to Yushalayim. You can pick any of the Haftaras of the Shiva de Nechemta, which we read after Tisha B'Av. Rani Akara lo Yolada, Pitzchi Harim Rina, I mean, these are so beautiful. And, and we feel as if all these prophecies about our return are actually materializing. Which parak did Ravaran think of, or I think even recite as a child? Parachav Beis in Tehillim. Parachav Beis in Tehillim is a parak which 
Davin Sakharish Baruch to save us from our enemies. I'm, I'm, I have a, I'm using my computer. Why Hashem have you forsaken me? I call out to you, please answer me, because you have supported me from my mother's womb. And it, it was very reflective of the fact, really, of two issues. Number one, that he didn't get too ahead of himself as if, well, we're now in the prophetic era and everything we've hoped for and waited for is materializing. But it's a slow process. And also, because I think a lot of his Zionism was guarded and cautious and appreciating that we had created a refuge in the horrors of the Holocaust where Jews had no place to go and to, to, to flee to, that we had to protect this very, very fledgling state that was still vulnerable. We were still davening rather than celebrating. We still felt susceptible rather than triumphant. So that, that, that's one very, very marked aspect of the state of Israel and how Rav helped us process it. I spoke this morning in Baltimore and I talked about that a little bit and I think to a degree it really characterizes two different parts of the national religious world. There's some of that world which is influenced by Rav Kook. It's called the Kav Yeshivos, and maybe I'll talk about that a little bit later. And there's a lot of thought of prophecy and connecting prophecy and assuming prophecy is happening and looking back to Tanakh, not just to give us strength that we're headed in the right direction, but literally to determine specific decisions, whom to vote for, whether to take this policy or that policy, a certain cockiness and, and overconfidence. And I think that the Zionism that Rav Luchnesin gave us was grounded, responsible, cautious, halachic. And then I think he didn't add that prophetic layer. But let me tell you about two conversations that happened 50 years apart to help exemplify this. Two conversations, one in 1962, one in 2012, literally 50 years, um, 50 years apart. Two different continents, two different people. They couldn't be more different, but the parallel between these two conversations and the way that it demonstrates this point, it's almost eerie. In 1962, Rebuchenstein visited Israel for the first time. So he returns back to visit his Rebbe, Rebbe And Rebbe asks him, what are his feelings upon returning? What did it feel like? So... Rav Lichtenstein first responded that there's a vitality, I'm just reading Rav Lichtenstein's description, the vitality of Jewish life and the sense of total community in Israel, I'm giving my words now, holistic and embracing, you're not living in little islands, you're living in a sweeping Jewish environment. Rav Lichtenstein responded, you could have had that in Eastern Europe, what makes Israel different? Then Rav Aaron said, well, there's a broader range of mitzvahs and halacha, shemitah, yovel, kashras, national, so there's an expansion of halachic activity. And Rufunna said you could have had that in Eastern Europe as well or in North Africa during the Golden Era. So finally, Rufunna actually chides Rav Lechnesin and almost screams at him. He says as follows, why don't you mention the uniqueness of being in Eretz Yisrael? It's more than just greater mitzvot and, and more halachic application and Jewish history. And there, there's something, there's magic. There, there's, in my words, there's prophecy. There's redemption. Why don't you mention that? And Ravaran was stunned, and in Ravaran's words, he says, I walked out of there like a beaten dog. He felt as if Rafutner had lectured him. And this is such a perfect distillation that Rafutner was trying to get Ravaran to talk about the magic of Israel, not just more mitzvahs, the land of the Avos, or more Kedusha, or more rainfall. And Ravaran, that wasn't his, the core of his 
with Zionism. So the second conversation takes place around 2012, Rav Sabato, the Rosh Hashiva of Malaya Dumim, interviewed Rav Lechnesin towards the end of his life, asked him all these forms of questions, and towards the tail end of this chapter about Israel, Rav Sabato says as follows to Rav Aram, you spoke about seizing the staff of history. You mentioned the establishment of the state as a diplomatic move and the risks and the savior of it. But then Rav Sabato said, it is clear that Rav Cook's followers see the establishment of an independent Israel as more than just a diplomatic arrangement to save Jews. They see it as a historical event that realizes the vision of the prophets. This is Rav Zabato prodding Rav Aaron. And even your Rebbe, Rav Soloveitchik, in his famous essay, Kodotin Dofeik, speaks that Hashem is knocking at the door of history in the state of Israel. And you haven't mentioned anything about that. So Rav Zabato was essentially challenging Rav Aaron in the same way that Rav Hunter challenged him 50 years earlier in Brooklyn. And Ravarin just wa- washes it aside. He says, this is Ravarin answering of Zabata. I don't know to what degree Koldo D. Dofeg, the Rev's book, reflects the Rev's approach. I know that Rev Cook would wake up and feel the magic, but the Rev did it, and Koldo D. Dofeg was written in a particular context. Ravarin essentially diminishes, uh, trivializes, but marginalizes Koldo D. Dofeg. These are two stories. One is Ravarin Lichtenstein speaking as a young, younger person to Rav Huttner. One is Ravar Luchasin speaking as an aging man to Rav Sabato. He's being asked the same question, and his response is eerily identical, because it wasn't how he voiced his Zionism through Sefer Yeshaya, through Navi, through Geula. It was grounded, it was mitzvahs, it was Kedusha, it was Shechina, being close to Kaddish Baruch Hu. It was pragmatic, saving Jewish lives. And, 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 the, and the tools he used were not Pesachim in Tanakh, but a lucky category. I don't want to elaborate. I want this show to be half an hour, and I want to make a couple other points. Number two, life in Israel is much more collectivist than it is individualist. We live in Israel feeling we're part of one nation, one people. Obviously, there are differences, religious, secular, Sephardi, Ashkenazi, wealthy, not. But there's a commonality, and we feel it especially very acutely, despite all of our differences in the political polarization, Missiles don't discriminate, an army doesn't discriminate, and I feel like we're in one boat, and we, and, and and it affects a lot of differences that a lot of people who make Aliyah have a hard time shifting into that legitimately. How do you see your life based on who you belong to and what your nation is and where it's heading, or who you are? When you wake up in the morning, how do you, well, what type of self-introspection? You think about your people, you think about yourself, and obviously... Ideally, Avodah Hashem is, is a blend of the two. It's only life in Eretz Yisrael, and it's only life in Eretz Yisrael as influenced by Rav Cook's thought and his Talmud. It's very, very collectivist. Rav Lechtenstein was an individualist, very much in the spirit of Rav Soloveitchik, and he always balanced that. He would always tell us about, you can't just think about Klal Yisrael, you have to think about Rebbe Yisrael. Rebbe Yisrael meaning individual Jew, and of course, the most significant Rebbe Yisrael would be yourself, your own growth. You can't exempt yourself or acquit yourself from your own cheshbon and nefesh, your own responsibility to your world, because the state of Israel is marching forward and it's so successful. And here I have another interesting story. Let me see if I could pull it up. And I'm on the roads. I'm trying it right. Here's the story. In 1978, Shimon Peres visits the yeshiva, and he asks Rav Lichtenstein, what is the political credo of the yeshiva? Now, I'm sure 
Shimon Perez means, are you right, are you left, are you in favor of peace, are you in favor of, not, of moral land, what are your positions about this? He's asking national questions. You ask anyone that question, he'll tell you, are Yeshiva believes in this party, this policy? <laughs> Listen to what Ravaran answered Shimon Perez in 1978. He says three things. This is our, these are our three animamins. These are the three legs of the Yeshiva. Number one, Ravaran speaking now. Even when sitting in the base matters, you have a responsibility to the community. Namely, you can't just sequester yourself from Torah. You're obligated to your community. Number two, when addressing problems, you have to think deeply, not simplistically. Don't just be black and white, binary, be subtle. Number three, even when you do what's right, you have to respect other people's opinions and the people who hold them. Respect differences. I can only imagine what Shimon Peres was thinking. That's not what he was asking. He was asking national questions. What's your position on this national issue? What's your position about whatever was happening in 1978, about peace with Egypt, about getting back to Sinai, about things that the entire nation are thinking about. And Ravaran has an answer. Ravaran says, well, how do you develop and educate yourself and, and those around you? Number one, don't insulate yourself in the world because of Torah. Number two, don't be simplistic, be complex. Understand that there's subtlety in life. Number three, respect other people's opinions even though you don't agree with them. And, and it's just such a perfect synopsis of Ravaran restoring some of that individualism into this equation that has to be, I think people will start to need more collectivism, need more nationalism. You just think about your own Fort Amos and your own community, your own shul, you think about well, what's happening to Jews across the globe, what is happening in Israel today. But in Israel, the nationalism is so deep and so powerful, and Ravaran is, is restoring a little bit of that individualism and collectivism. And I think it made him sensitive to two issues. I spoke on Arab Shabbos, and, and someone came over to me and said he just couldn't understand how Rav Lichtenstein was even loosely supportive of exploring peace in the 80s and 90s. It seems like such a cruel joke. And of course, looking back 2020 hindsight, trying to convey to him that, as I said earlier, it was a different year, it was a different period. It wasn't just Ravar and Ravad Yosef and other Gedolim of Shach. There were people who lent their support maybe not their enthusiastic support, but certainly their political clout to some of these decisions. And those who were considering it were concerned with Bikulach Nefesh. If we can save lives on both sides, then halacha demands that we explore those options. Bikulach Nefesh is a halacha construct. Not giving back land is not. There's no issue to give back land. It's not written in Shulchan Aruch. We can discuss whether it's right or whether it's not. And then taking a position, Bikuach Nefesh is a halacha. You have a mitzvah Bikuach Nefesh, you have to explore. And we look back at this as a joke, but people thought. Now, Bikuach Nefesh is a factor on a personal level. Can I save this person's life or these groups of people's life? There's no such thing as Bikuach Nefesh on a national level, or else you'd never go to war. You say, well, Pikuach so we should never go to war, because when you go to war, inevitably, someone will pass, someone will suffer. Pikuach is about saving individual lives. And it's a very subtle point, but if you're not thinking in individual terms, then Pikuach is not an issue. You have to engage in the military calculus and think about the benefits and the disadvantages and then make a decision. But if you take Pekuach into account, it's because you're thinking about the role of the individual, the value of individual life. The second issue that I think made him sensitive and, and really encouraged him to at least think about the option of peace is it was never just, well, if we're able to reach peace, then we'll save lives. And, and But because he felt that this whole process of being involved militarily 
and and territorially, which he was in favor and support of, and he built the Gush, was coming at the cost of the focus on spiritual development and, and how much time, if, if you spend so much time in the army and so much time defending the country and so much time engaged in battle, so, much, so what time is left for Talmud Torah, what time is, in, is left for remains for a ticket on this again, which is a very, very individual concept. And you're just thinking collectively, well, our people needs, our people requires, and our nation requires these resources dedicated. But once you make it into a multivariable equation, it's not just, well, what are the needs of the nation? And then how do those needs trickle down and impact the life of the individual as you're trying to become an Elvin Hashem? And remember, when you're not living in Eretz Yisrael, basically you're thinking individualistically. I don't mean egotistically or self-centrally, but you're thinking about and living as a year. What are my responsibilities? Like, well, those responsibilities could radiate to other people, but they radiate for me. I have a chiv for chesed, I have a chiv to help, I have a chiv. Now we're living in Eretz Yisrael, and now we're thinking, well, how do we build a nation? And that comes sometimes at too steep a price for individual needs. That's really, I think, the second aspect that I think we're looking is very careful about calibrating our return to Eretz Yisrael and the shift into collectivism as opposed to individualism. Number three is Ravaran was an institutionalist. What I mean is as follows. Anyone who's national religious believes in the concept that the state is a religious opportunity. We want to try to infuse the state with religious meaning and flavor. And we want to try to influence those people who belong to the state and are partners in building the state with spiritual identity. But the real test happens, what happens when the state turns against you? What happens when the government, right now we've had a, several years of a right-leaning government, heavily influenced with religious values, but what happens with the government is in disagreement with your positions and your platform? And this was a real issue in the 90s, in the early 2s, the government of Rabin and Perez and Eric Barak, and then... When many people who were opposed to Ariel Sharon's disengagement from Azaz, was typically associated with a right-wing government, but he took positions which many in the religious community were opposed to. So a lot of national Zionists become entrenched, and they're opposing us, and these people are our enemies, and we have to defend our positions and defend our needs and our rights. And then they see themselves as outsiders. It's us against the Labor Party or us against the secular Zionists, or us against the army is forcing us to, you know, they want us to, to execute orders that we are uncomfortable with and we're going to battle. Ravarum was an institutionalist. It's never us versus them. It's our army. It's our government. It's our police. We're part of it. And it's our problem. And we'll try to find a way. And it's a democracy. You can voice your opinion. But it was never... And, and that's why the issue of disobeying orders, there's never, there's never this entrenched opposition between too far. I remember a couple of years ago, the army demanded, strongly suggested from the Hezri Yeshivas that the boys serve an extra two months. Typically, they serve 16, they wanted to copy the toy, I think now it's 18. And we had some very, very heated conversations in the staff room because it really started to consume some of the time we wanted the boys to spend in Yeshiva. But it was never, they're the enemies, they're the devil, these are our foes, we're going to defeat them. It was, this is our army, this is our country, there are multiple needs. Obviously, we see things a little different than the people who are administering army service and determining army length. And how are we, 
going to solve a problem. It, it's us. And, and you can't just check out of an institution when that institution, which is democratic, tilts away from your interests or away from your benefit. Remember how corrosive that is of democracy. And when Trump was elected, and I'm not supporting or opposing Trump, but look at how divisive it's been. He's not our president and Trump is not our president. That's not democracy. Democracy is you participate in the process. And if your position is accepted, then you implement. And if not, you're still inside. You're in the opposition and the Knesset. You can discuss. You can oppose. But this polarization and becoming an outsider, which which disobeying orders, vilifying soldiers, vilifying Knesset members, it was never part of our conversation. It was never part of it. In the three minutes that remain, mindful of the time, I just want to stress two impacts which the Luchensin had on Israel. So if I've talked about three different ways that he helped us process our relationship to Geula, in addition to prophecy, this very clear-headed, halachic prisms to help us navigate it, helping us avoid some of the dangers of overhyped giddiness that prophetic redemptiveness can lead to. Number two, I talked about collectivists versus individual. It's not just how we are as a people, but continuing to grow as individuals within that collective environment. And number three, becoming institutionalists, not just outsiders when the institutions tilt away from your interests. How do Ravari impact Israel? So very, very briefly. Number one, the Hezder movement, which today is over 60, 70 yeshivas, it's, it's really uh, has, has redefined national Zionism. In 1968, I think early 70s, when it was first emerging, was being driven primarily by Talmidim of Rav Kook and Merkaz of Rav Kook. And that is a very, very different feel in many ways than the classic Lithuanian feel of Volozhin and Slobodka, which today, of course, is expressed in Yeshiva Velt. Greater emphasis on Machshava. Obviously, a lot of time spent meeting with Kok. Those who study Gemara, it's a lot less lambdas. It's not as hooked into the world of Rebuchanan and Rebchayim and Neftali A lot of differences. Right now, not enough time. Ravaran brought the Lithuanian Yeshiva world to the Hezder process. And a lot of people bemoan the fact that he left America and how America would have been different if he were here, but not living in Israel, they can't begin to appreciate how deeply he impacted the Hezder movement in its embryonic stage. And how many yeshivas today across the board, and not all of them, many, many Hezder yeshivas are still built on that Lithuanian. If you walk into, let's say, my yeshiva, the Gush yeshiva, the optics look a little different. There aren't hats, there aren't jackets. There are significant differences. But when you sit down at 10.30, if you close your eyes, you could be in the air, or you could be in Panavish, you could be in Lakewood, or you could be in Wayu. You're reading a Rashba about a sugya in Gitan and hearing what Reb Chaim had to say about the sugya and the centrality of Talmud Torah as the source of a person's relationship with the Kodesh Baruch Hu. Many, many aspects that Lithuanian yeshiva were for better or for worse, but that would not have been as prominent an ingredient of the Hezder growth as it is. Keep in mind, of course, with Chaim Govich, the founding Rosh Hashiva of Karen Biavna, was the founding Hezder yeshiva, and he, of course, was linked to the Litvishi world, but he certainly didn't see himself as building a new Hezder world. Karen Biavna, when he started, was seen as 
I mean, the other place are people that can't go learn in Panavish, can't go learn in Chevron. Gush and some of the yeshivas that were being built around that time said, so let's start this new concept where Hezder's Lachachila, where that's the ideal for. And it shouldn't be underestimated how much Ravari influenced the Torah scene in the Datilomi world in Eretz Yisrael. I think of people in history who changed Torah. Rashi, when he was growing up in the 11th century, there was no one to learn from in France. They had to go to Germany to study Torah. And he came back to France, and he and his grandchildren built France into a center of Torah that they had come. The Ramah, when he moved to Poland in the 16th century, there was nothing in Poland. It was a joke. What are you, what are you going to Poland for? There's nothing there. And then Poland becomes a center of Torah. Rav, when he moves to Babel in 239, obviously Jews that live in Babel, but but the center of Torah was still in Eretz Yisrael. And Rav moving from Tiberia, where he learned with Rabbi Danasi, to Babel, that all of a sudden converted Babel into the center of Torah. And anyway, that was a little bit sad because it was outside of Eretz Yisrael. And I think of Rav Aaron in a very similar term. I think of Rav Aaron Cutler, someone who built Torah in America. The second issue, and this is a little bit ironic, is that essentially you could look at Rav Lechmesin as one of the most important personalities in the settler movement over the last 40 years, or how long it's been. Um, there are people who are very, very loud and vocal and ideological and carry flags and protests, and, and they certainly played their role. But Ravaran quietly built Gush. And I don't mean Gush as the yeshiva, I mean the area that I'm sure every single person has visited. The Efrats, the Nevei Daniel, the Elazar, the Elam Shvot, the Rani Levi, the pizza, the restaurants, in a very quiet way, by placing the yeshiva and by building the yeshiva into an international brand and attracting people. It's a very different feel. It's upscale. It doesn't have the feel of a settlement. And, and there's a lot of ramifications politically that won't be given back or is ever on the table. Without elaborating, it, it's, it's very different, let's say, unfortunately, than, than the feel you had in Asla. And unfortunately, that's why some of the settlements in Asla were easy to envision relinquishing. Again, I'm not supporting them up, but it's just... It's a different, different feel. And Ravaran was awarded towards the end of his life with the highest non-military prize in Israel. It's called the Pras Yisrael. And he was given the award on Yom Asimov. There's a video, maybe I'll put, post it on Facebook on Yom Asimov of getting the award from the DB. And in his interview, he said, who would have thought that I'd be such a Zionist? And I'd be... But in many ways, as odd as it sounds, this Lithuanian Talmud Chacham would learn with Rav Hutner or learn with Soloveitchik essentially put stacks on the ground that led to this mushrooming of the broader bush today. Obviously, it wasn't their city planning and building roads and building houses, but just his presence affected the gush area in ways that are still continuing to expand. Trust me, the traffic in gush these days is absolutely terrible. So these are some of the ways that Ravaram helped us experience the state of Israel, helped us experience Gulas Israel, and I think the way that he impacted the land of Israel. And... Um, uh, it's not necessarily the first thing that comes to mind when people think about Ravara and talk about it's normally about his learning and his midos and sitkas, but I think are obviously the aspects to be stressed and emphasized, but this is something that I felt should be displayed or articulated. So hopefully we'll have good news in Eretz Yisrael, and in addition to that, um, hopefully we'll have a very meaningful, meaningful Yom Zikaron and pay honor to all the people who have sacrificed so much for our state, and Ravaran's life and his uh, Torah and all his Avodah Hashem should be a schus to continue to both solidify the world of Torah and solidify our, our beloved state of Eretz Yisrael. And hopefully we should celebrate all of that with Hashem on Thursday.